Well, good morning again. Great to see everybody here today. What an awesome day uh, to be out and worshiping and uh, in the middle of the season, everything that's going on, uh, just some amazing things. And uh, we're glad that you've chosen to join us today. Uh, today, we're going to continue a series that we began uh, last week about the story you thought you knew about Jesus. And uh, we're trying to just kind of pull from the scripture, not just facts, but the spirit of the coming of Christ and why it's important to us, why we need to know about this. You know, recently, uh, Joe uh, Mazzola, who's the coach of Boston Celtics and a strong Christian, he was asked by a reporter, remember you saw this little clip, he was asked by a reporter if he got a chance to meet the royal family. Uh, evidently, uh, the Prince of Wales and Princess had come to a Celtics game, and uh, Joe, he said, Have you, did you meet the royal family? And Joe, with a straight face, said, you mean Mary and Joseph and Jesus? <laughs> and a straight face. And uh, he goes, uh, that's the only royal family I know. And uh, he said, next question. And uh, the, the reporter was kind of speechless about that. And it was really, it was a really good moment. You got to look that up on uh, Instagram or something. Um, but let me ask you this morning, do you know Jesus? Do you know not only about Jesus, do you know he was born this time of year, but do you know, and how much do you know about Jesus? You know, it's kind of interesting that the life of Jesus did not seem to be destined for greatness that Jesus was born in a very small, obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. Uh, Jesus didn't go to high school. didn't go to college. He never visited a large city. In fact, he never traveled over a couple, over a hundred miles or so from the place where he was born. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. And he was only 33 years of age in the prime of his life when the tide of public opinion turned against him and prompted even his closest friends to abandon him. And he was then turned over to his enemies uh, who nailed him to a wooden cross between a couple of common criminals. And while he was dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing, which, by the way, as far as we know, was the only property he even had on this earth. After he died, he was laid in a borrowed tomb that was given to the pity of an acquaintance. And yet almost 2,000 years later, uh, uh, Jesus is arguably the most important figure and most central figure of the entire human race. If this amounts to anything, he has appeared on the cover of Times Magazine, Newsweek, and U.S. News and World Report more than any other single figure or topic in all of time. His life even marks our concept of time. We call this 2022, 2022 A.D., which is Latin for basically the year of our Lord. Anything before the birth of Jesus is BC, meaning before Christ. His life has had an impact on everything, regardless of whether people believe in him or not. He is a central figure of all of humanity and all of history. But the question is, do we really know who Jesus is? I mean, really, I'm not sure that we do. Many of us don't know a lot about Jesus. We know the name, uh, we've heard of him, but we may not know a lot about him. For example, most of us maybe even are wrong about what he looked for. like. We have a picture in our mind what Jesus was. We've seen that picture many times probably. And we assume in the, from the picture that Jesus was white like us, right? He wasn't, obviously. Uh, <laughs> while there's not a single historical reference in the physical appearance of Jesus and nothing in the Bible that describes what he looks like, we do know that he was not white. In fact, he was a Mediterranean Jew. His skin would have had the dark olive darkness that you find in that region even today, which also means that Jesus didn't speak English, not even King James English. He didn't even speak that, which you probably thought he did. Um, he, uh, you know, he, he wasn't, uh, uh, he would have been schooled as a boy in Hebrew. 
He also would have learned Greek. I took a shot at a few years of Greek. That's hard. Uh, but that Greek was a common language of common, uh, business and commerce in that day. But his native language actually was Aramaic. He spoke Arabic, uh, Aramaic, not, uh, not even Greek or Hebrew. And being a Mediterranean Jew also means that he wasn't overly tall. We have this picture of Jesus being a tall, striking figure. Uh, he was probably short, under, well under six feet. Not only was he not tall, but according to the ancient prophecies surrounding the coming of the Messiah, Jesus, he wasn't physically impressive either. There was nothing about him that drew you to him physically. You didn't, you didn't just say, wow, that guy looks, he's a handsome man, necessarily. Look at what the prophet Isaiah wrote. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. So it wasn't that Jesus was this person that, that when people looked at, he was so you know, outstanding from everybody else. The idea that Jesus was tall, dark, and handsome is true only on the dark side. He was darker, right? But nothing that really drew people to him. And I'm not sure that we do any better in knowing about Jesus in uh, then it comes to the most important parts of his life, like his birth, the Christmas story. So last week, we started this series called The Story You Thought You Knew, and we talked about Mary and Joseph. And we tried to dispel some of the thoughts that maybe we have about Mary, that Mary was, you know, this special woman, that she was a perpetual virgin, that she was perfect, that she never never sinned. And, you know, all those things of just ideas that we've kind of built up around them. We talked about how they were poor. We talked about how they were in a crisis pregnancy situation. And it really wasn't the best time to welcome a child into the world, which oftentimes happened. But today I want to talk about and look at the birth of Jesus himself, the birth of Jesus. And ask the question, first of all, when did it really occur? When was Jesus born? That we think we know, right? We celebrate it every year. Was it really December 25th? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us a lot about that, but let's read the story and see what we can glean from that. It says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Cornelius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up to the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. When they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for available, guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now we, again, we read this over and over again, and we celebrate, you know, December 25th is a big day for kids. It's a big day for all of us. People love Christmas, but we don't even know if that was the right day. It's a little bit odd when you think about it. We don't know for sure. There are some clues about it. First of all, it was during a census that was conducted by Cornelius, who was a Roman governor. So we know the year, definitely know that. The year of his birth is conformed by, uh, confirmed by history. But you know, like our census today, you know how long the census takes when it, in, the, in the United States? It drags out forever, doesn't it? 
They, they take a whole year. Every 10 years, we take a census. It takes a year. So in that day, I'm sure a census would take at least a year to happen because things didn't happen very quickly then either. It would take months to conduct. People would hear about it. Then they had to make plans, and then they would travel and return to their family's hometown to register. We also know that shepherds were in the field, which means it would probably be a warm night. They had winter kind of like we do too, but winter in that day were kind of mild, so it's possible it could have been December. And we occasionally have some nice December nights, you know, that are kind of warm. So uh, that doesn't rule it out. The truth is we don't have any idea when the day was to be cut to the chase. So, but December 25th is probably as good a date as any. And also it has the longest tradition. The idea of celebrating Christmas traces back on the 25th of December, traces back to the 4th century. And there was also a, Ro- a Roman festival, a pagan festival, uh, on the same day in honor of the pagan god Saturn, Saturnalia. And so it would have been a holiday for everybody. So it's very likely that even if it wasn't the right day, it was close, and it would allow the Christians to be off work if they were employees, or to be, if they were slaves, they would be free to go to celebrate Jesus' birth. So I think we're okay in saying December 25th is probably close enough. The second thing you might not have known about Jesus' birth is that it had been planned a long time. It had been planned a long time. This wasn't just something that happened on the spur of the moment. This is amazing there. There were so many prophecies surrounding the coming of the Messiah, and Jesus' birth fulfilled all of them, not just generally, but in very specific detail. There was prophecy that saying the Messiah would be a descendant of King David, And Jesus was on both sides, Mary and Joseph, even though Joseph was just his earthly father. Last week, we talked about the accounts in Matthew and Luke that traced the genealogy back through David. Both Mary and Joseph's side uh, went through David and uh, all the way back to Abraham. So the prophet Micah said that Jesus would be born in the tiny town of Bethlehem. Mary and Joseph lived in Nazareth. 70 miles away. They only went to Bethlehem because that was their ancestor's hometown of David. They had to go there for the census. It all worked out. Isaiah said the Messiah would be given gifts, which would come from the wise men. Another prophecy was that the Messiah would spend time in Egypt. Why in the world would Jewish, poor Jewish people go to Egypt? If you know the story, They went to Egypt because they had to go uh, flee from King Herod who tried to kill Jesus. So everything came together to fulfill every prophecy. Now, some people might write this off to coincidence. They might just say, well, you know, somebody did a little work and there are coincidences, but you know what? Jesus didn't just fulfill one, two, three, or four prophecies. He fulfilled all of them, not only his birth, but his entire life. Some suggest that there are as many as 300 prophecies that have specific details, all of them were fulfilled in the life of Jesus. And that would be literally impossible to be a single coincidence. I've told you this before, but this is one of my favorite stories about uh, the fulfillment of prophecies that Peter Stoner, who was a scientist and a mathematician, worked on this with 600 of his students. He said in several of his classes, we're going to figure out the odds, calculate the odds of one prophecy being fulfilled in the life of Jesus the way it, way it did, just by chance. So they looked at just one prophecy. And, and the odds of one prophecy being fulfilled were one in 400 million. Well, that, that's, a, that's a lot, a lot of odds, right? But they said, let's go deeper. And they took eight of the prophecies, and they calculated the odds of eight prophecies being fulfilled in the life of one person. 
Keep in mind there were 300, but they limited their figures and their studies to eight of them. And they determined the odds were one in 10 to the 17th power. So if you can imagine 10, 17 zeros, I don't think there's a number for that actually uh, that can even be spoken. But, but it's a huge number, and the odds were just huge. I love the way that Stoner illustrated the meaning of this, because I, I have to see things, a picture uh, of things. He asked the reader to imagine filling the state of Texas. you ever been to Texas? It is a huge state to drive across. Uh, fill, imagine fill the state of Texas knee-deep in silver dollars. Knee-deep. Include in this um, pile of silver dollars one silver dollar with a black check mark on it. And then you mix it all up, the entire state, and you hide that one silver dollar. And then you take a blindfolded person and turn them loose in the state of Texas. And the odds that the first coin they would pick up would be the one with the black check mark on it. That were the odds of someone fulfilling only eight of the 300 prophecies. That is staggering to think about. There is no coincidence. Couldn't possibly be coincidence. So did you ever know that the Old Testament so completely confirms confirms the identity of Jesus? He was the promised one. But how how do we know the Old Testament writers didn't, you know, pull some strings? How do we know they didn't alter the details of Jesus' life to make it look like he fulfilled all these prophecies? Well, the New Testament account began circulating very quickly after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And people were still alive that would have corrected the account. You know, there's critics and cynics everywhere, skeptics everywhere that are always trying to, you know, prove somebody wrong, but nobody ever did, or, or nor could they. And more convincingly, the writers of the New Testament, almost all of them were willing to die a martyr's death for their story. You know, people will die for what they believe in, and they have down through time, but people won't die for a lie. If I know something's wrong, I'm not going to bank my life. I'm not going to give my life for that. So they would not manipulate that. Another objection, maybe Jesus intentionally met the requirements of the prophecies to make it look like he was fulfilling them. Well, Jesus knew the Old Testament prophecies for sure, but never could he have orchestrated the birth, his own birth. He could not have made all that happen and people bring gifts to him and, and all the details. It would have been too difficult. No one could do that. And the reason I share this is all this is background to the birth of Christ. To be honest with you, it's something that most of us will probably never think about, but it is really convincing proof that Jesus truly is the Messiah. And we need to know that. We need to have that kind of confidence of his identity. A third thing you might not know about the birth of Jesus is that it was a very desperate and stark situation. You know, it used to be, and we don't do this as often, but, and some, some of you do that, you send Christmas cards out, but Christmas cards have that beautiful, serene scene of, uh, of Mary there in pristine, clean clothes, and Joseph is leaning on a staff behind her, and he's smiling, and they're looking down at this little baby who's got blonde hair and blue eyes, and Looks like he's about six months old laying there and has a cherub and, you know, in the manger and it's everything's clean and calm and all is quiet. It's a beautiful picture to think about, but that's probably not what happened at all, right? This is probably not the scene. They had been traveling for several days. I doubt that Mary was quite that fresh uh, and, and clean and, and Joseph was probably in pretty bad shape himself. And, and the city was crowded. We know the story and they didn't have anyone. They didn't know anybody there. There was nowhere to stay. They were in a desperate and stark situation. You know, a lot of mothers have had last-minute births, 
Uh, a lot of them on the way to the hospital, you know, just barely got there in the stories we just got there. Um, I was reading this week about a policeman, I think has delivered like five babies in the last few years in, on the way to the hospital. But you know what? There's always somebody there. There's, there's medical professionals, a police officer, there's the EMT, there's a hospital to go to. For Mary, there was none of this. None of this. First child, they end up in an outdoor livestock area. Uh, and the pictures, it's like uh, cedar shakes and really nice, but probably was a dark, dingy cave of some sort. And it was more than likely damp and smelly. And we see pictures of clean straw and everything just purchased probably at the store. But that probably didn't happen like that. There was nowhere to lay the baby. So they ended up using a feeding trough as a bassinet. There was no midwife, no hot water, just a, a kind of lonely, stark scene more than likely. No light, probably very little light. And when the baby was born, Mary wrapped the baby in cloths herself as she recovered from the birth. Imagine that, moms. You know, you're just giving birth and now you're having to take care of the baby. You don't have five nurses, you know, attending you and taking care of everything. So imagine a teen girl going through all of this, doing all this alone and trying to figure out what to do on her own. I'm sure Joseph wasn't much help, to be honest with you. You know, some of us, some people suggest that those claws that were used were, were claws that may have been lying around the, the manger anyway, that had been used to wrap up the lambs. Uh, kind of fascinating to think about. Uh, they were near Bethlehem, which is where the lambs were often born for sacrifice in the city of Jerusalem. And when these lambs were born, they would be wrapped in these claws so that they would not be injured and they could be a perfect sacrifice. And some speculate that maybe they picked these claws up, which probably were not real clean themselves and swaddled the baby and made do the best they could. It was not a perfect situation, right? The final thing you may not know about the birth of Jesus is that it gives us a picture of God, that it really is a picture of God coming to earth. This tiny baby that was born in primitive conditions and not the best of circumstances was God in human form coming down here to reach out to his creation. And maybe you already knew that, but the reality is kind of overwhelming when you think about it. Because when Jesus came as a human being, it teaches us a lot about the God that we love. So what do we learn from this birth? A few things. First of all, that God is very humble. God is humble. We don't oftentimes see humility demonstrated in our world, especially in visiting dignitaries. When people come, you don't see a lot of humility in that. You know, we're, we live in an area where dignitaries come in quite often, and the whole world wants to shut down. They want to shut the world down for them to pass through our town. You've probably seen that in the past. 2007, Queen Elizabeth visited the United States to celebrate the 400th anniversary of Jamestown, their first settlement just a few years back. But she brought with her 4,000 pounds of luggage, two outfits for every occasion, a mourning outfit in case someone died, 40 pints of plasma in case she needed it, a white kid leather toilet seat, her own hairdresser, two valets, and a host of other attendants. That was the queen's visit to the U.S. a few years ago, and everyone scraped and bowed when she came, right? But God, the king of the universe, came to our planet as an infant who couldn't speak, who couldn't eat solid food, who couldn't control his bladder. And he was born in an animal shelter. He was placed in a feeding trough. And Philippians chapter 2 describes it like this. He set aside the privileges of heaven and deity and took on the status of a slave. 
he became human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. Jesus humbled himself by becoming one of us. The second thing we see about God here is that God is approachable. That God could have come to our world in any way he chose to, but he came in the most non-threatening, unintimidating way possible as a baby. And you may say, well, a baby intimidates me only because you're afraid you're going to drop it. You know, a baby is not going to call you out or is not going to embarrass you. A baby, you know, is, is very humble and very approachable. Everybody wants to grab a baby and hold it. You know, I know that some of us grew up of being afraid of God. Maybe that's how God was presented to you. And you saw him as stern and angry and severe and unfeeling and unapproachable. But that's not who God is. Not who God is. He did not come uh, in a powerful role. He came in a humble role. Coming as a baby to show us how non-threatening he really is. Because as an infant, God found a way to relate to human beings that didn't involve fear or hesitancy or anything. They just invited us to come to him. The third thing that I see about the birth of, of Jesus when God came is that God is tilted toward the underdog. Toward the underdog. The birth of Jesus reveals what the Bible oftentimes focuses on. The weak overcoming the strong, the poor winning over the rich. And not just because of the humble circumstances of his birth, but because who was first told of his birth. If you and I were arranging this, we probably would have had him being announced to uh, some pretty important people, you know, religious people, business people. This is who Jesus is. But instead, the angels went to the lowest of the low, the angels, and gave them the good news. They announced that a baby had been born to these shepherds who were out in the field keeping watch over their sheep at night. And that's kind of interesting because shepherds in that day were considered to be a low class of people. They were almost like gypsies or something. They, they weren't considered to be reliable. They couldn't even testify in court. So Jesus went, or the angel went to the least likely people, the underdog, and he gave them a voice. Hey, a baby's been born. We're telling people great news that we've never had anybody tell us first. The first is last, and the last is first. Well, there's one other thing that Jesus' birth shows us, I think, and that is that God is courageous, that God is courageous. You know, God could have chosen to send his son into the world in a much more public way. He could have sent his son in a more influential way into a wealthy family or a powerful family with glory and splendor, announced with trumpets, but instead he chose to come as a tiny baby in a poor family in fragile and tragic, almost, circumstances and in a human setting. And that's really courageous of God to come down and put himself in that humble situation and vulnerable situation. It took courage to enter an earthly life knowing that this life was fragile, that he would be mocked, that he would be rejected, and that his main purpose in living was to die on a cross. But he did that anyway. And the reason maybe something that he never knew and that that you never knew and that is because he loves us he loves us that's baffling for us jb phillips was a writer he wrote a fantasy about a senior angel who showed a a very young angel around the glory and splendor of the universe and so together they go through a, a view whirling 
galaxies and blazing suns and fly across the unlimited distance of space until at last they enter one particular galaxy of five billion stars. It was called the Milky Way. Closer to home, right? As they drew near the star that they, we call the sun, the senior angel, angel pointed to a small and rather insignificant looking sphere that was slowly turning on its axis. It looked like a dirty tennis ball to the little angel whose mind had been filled with all the size and the glory of what he had just seen in creation. And the angel, the older angel said, look, look closely at that one. And the younger angel asked why it looks rather small and dirty to me. What's so special about it? And the senior angel said, that is the visited planet. And the young angel said, do you mean to tell me that our great and glorious prince went down in person to this fifth rate little ball? Why would he do something like that? I can't imagine he stooped so low as to become one of those creeping, crawling creatures on that floating ball. And then the older angel said, I don't think uh, he would like you calling them creeping, crawling creatures and certainly not using that tone of voice. And then looking down at the planet known as earth, the senior angel said, strange as it may be, he loves them. We don't know why, but he loves them. He went down there to visit them, to lift them up, to become like him. And at that, that little angel's face went blank. Such a thought was almost beyond his comprehension. And you know, it really is beyond comprehension for us to imagine that, the God of all creation that would do that, to become a human being in the person of Jesus. Why in the world would Jesus, would God do that? And what Phillips had the angel in this little story say is right. It wasn't just humility. It wasn't just to draw near. It wasn't even courage. At the heart of it, it was all about love. And that may be a lesson about Jesus that we never really knew, that he really loves you. And that's what prompted his coming to our earth. And there are a lot of things that we will never know about the birth of Jesus. Maybe in heaven, we'll have a class all about the birth of Jesus. Wouldn't that be great? And we would have all our questions answered, but probably at that point, it really won't matter as we're walking the streets and enjoying his presence. But the most important thing for you to know is to know Jesus. It's really all that matters. Because when this life is over, and it can come to a screeching halt, as we know, very quickly, very unexpectedly at any age, the only thing that matters is what happens after you die. And that's the hope that Jesus gives us. And that's the hope that we would offer to you today. My prayer is that you know that you have confidence that whenever you die, that you're going to go to heaven. And that confidence can only come through Jesus, our only hope. Baffling as it may be that God would care about us. He does. He's proven that. We are blessed because of that. And we celebrated Christmas, the coming. But even greater than that is the love that saves us. And I'd love to talk to you about that if you don't know for sure today. In just a few moments, we're going to have a time of, of sharing and time of worship, time of response. I'm going to be up. Tony will be here as well. There will be some other folks maybe that will be available to talk. If you want to talk to someone or pray with someone or just want to come up and pray and thank God for his love and his coming, it would be an awesome time to do that. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for today. Lord, it baffles our mind to imagine why that you would come in the form of your son, Jesus, to visit us and become one of us. And it comes down to your love for us, Lord. Father, may we be wise 
may we recognize your love and your offer and your invitation and respond and know for sure that we would be with you for eternity. Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.